Hello, welcome to Out in the Bay, queer radio and podcast. I'm Eric Jansen. How do we find human connection? Being in with the out crowd? A poet and author finds peers on the pier. Tony Morosevich joins us, Out in the Bay. Support for Out in the Bay this month comes from Project Open Hand. Learn more at openhand.org. My guest is author Tony Morosevich, whose latest book, Spell Heaven and Other Stories, reflects and muses on finding meaning in life, who we used to be, outsider status, societal changes, and much more. Spell Heaven celebrates, says the book's cover, those who are looking for human connection in an increasingly isolated world. Morosevich, who recently retired from teaching creative writing at San Francisco State University, has also written and published five books of poetry and a previous collection of short stories, Pink Harvest, which won her a first series award for creative nonfiction. She lives with her wife in Pacifica, a coastal town just south of San Francisco, much like Seaview, the made-up town where Spell Heaven is based. We spoke several years ago about Pink Harvest, soon after that book was published in 2007, and about the takeaway bin, her collection of poems about dilemmas a few years later in 2010, I believe. But I'm shocked to realize it's been more than a decade. Tony Morosevich, welcome back to Out in the Bay. Eric, it is wonderful to be back, and thank you for that lovely uh, intro. I usually ask authors to give listeners a taste by reading a short section of their books before we chat. Where would you like to start? What would you like to read first? I'm going to read from the title story, Spell Heaven, and it's when the narrator and or any of us need release from our daily cares and end up going down to the sea. When you're lost and looking for a sign, an omen, a clue, when the wishbone pull doesn't yield the lucky stem, when you no longer believe in heaven or hell, past lives or future, yet still hope for a hint, some shred of evidence, a piece of shining raiment, a lucky card that blows your way, offering something, a way forward, an escape plan. Whether you're feeling down due to a recent slight or a spate of misfortune, or the knowledge that melancholy has seeped into your bones, never coming in like gangbusters, but sneaking around the edges of the frame, a grayness that blankets the perimeter of the skin, then moves towards the center, the heart, the lungs, journeys to the center of your earth, enters and takes up residence, and after that, you're no longer looking up and out at the horizon to that flat line you use to trace forward progress. Then it's down to the sea for a walk, to the sea, the cure-all, end-all, and the pier, a concrete span like a left-handed margin, left justified, and yes, I'm justified in being here. At the pier's entrance, past the flagpole, today the flag hangs as limp as, say it, a dish rag. Past the Chat and Chew Cafe, there's a short slide of three steps, and you step onto the pier as if stepping onto a jet about to take off and over the cabin door. Yet isn't there the slightest hesitation before leaving the known behind? A worry that flickers. Is this a good idea? Until you get nudged by a guy who bumps into you from behind with his crab cart. Sorry, lady, but damn, what are you waiting for, Christmas? get going. This morning, something sends me back to that initial hesitation, that flickering worry. I've felt it before when I hesitated before taking that first step into the adult world and quickly stepped back. 
but I've grown tired of stasis. I'm looking for something to lift me. I want the catch to catch all, end all catches, and each day, like faith, still here, the pier, the sea, only out here, no worry to tie, only out here, no worry to bind. I take the first step on board, can feel the sway of the waves beneath me. This is as close as I'll get to the captain's day suspended above the ocean. Every day the pier crew casts off and casts out and then waits and waits. It's possible, isn't it? Tell me it is. You can have a life where whatever you catch brings you joy. That's Tony Morosevich reading a section of Spell Heaven, her new collection of short stories. So Spell Heaven comes from a note that the narrator has found on the beach. Tell us a little bit about this note where someone is obviously not having a very good time spelling <laughs> the word heaven. Well, a number of the stories really come out of some real life experience that then I imagine into and turn into a story. So one day I was walking on the pier. There's all kinds of life out there and everyone is having a big time catching or not catching fish. And I looked down, there's a small little scrap of paper obviously some kid, because it looks like a kid's writing. And they started at the top of the scrap and it says, Dear God. And then there are all of these attempts to spell heaven and they spell heaven wrong every single time. <laughs> it's H-A-V-E-N, H-E-A-V-I-N. And you can tell this kid is really, really trying to get it right. So um, that started this thinking in the narrator about all the ways they spell heaven. You know, you get a new lover. Oh, well, it's heavenly. That's heaven. Or, oh, I have a house or somebody looked at me a certain way. Everybody has a different view of spelling heaven. And I just thought there's so many ways to spell it. And maybe it's not about, for me, uh, sometimes people think status, power, money. Uh, what if uh, looking out at the sea is spelling heaven or... Um, Looking at you now, right now, Eric, is spelling <laughs> It's a different way to spell heaven. <laughs> so, Spell Heaven is set in a small fictional coastside town, Seaview. Why did you choose this setting and the name Seaview? And how closely is it patterned after Pacifica? Uh, you know, Seaview, um, it's, it's very closely patterned after Pacifica, uh, though at, well, I did fictionalize the characters, and I probably uh, did less fictionalizing of the place. I've always grown up on the coast, and this little coastal town, which now is very popular, which wasn't so true when I wrote my poetry book, Queer Street, when it was seemed less uh, queer-friendly here. <laughs> and so, uh, but now it's a great, wonderful coastal town that has been discovered by a lot of people. And also, sadly, climate change has changed the climate so that it's now quite sunny and um, often, often very beautiful. Um, Seaview was just something that I uh, picked out of my hat uh, because it has a sea view, and uh, and I I made my attempts at again imagining it uh, beyond the specifics of the town and characters that um, I had met in real life. Do you get the sense that people who live in Pacifica will recognize themselves and the characters in this book? Uh, you know, like Crab King and I, I don't know, I can't, the other names aren't coming to me right at the moment. Yes, I do think that that's quite possible. My wife and I walk at the sea every day, at least a couple of times a day. 
And a number of people in Pacifica have read the book or are reading the book, and they will say to me, you know, that sounds an awful lot like, ha, ha, ha. And then, um, so, <laughs> I, you know, while I've changed names and hair colors and um, all types of things, uh, some things do stand out. Let's say the essence of people that they know stands out. Do you think they recognize others more than they recognize themselves? I have had people say to me, why am I not in the book? So, so, <laughs> so even though they are. That's right. And I and I have said to one young man, I said, listen, you're in the next one. Don't worry, I'll get you in there. So uh, it's it's pretty funny. In the start of uh, writing these stories, it really was about strangers and about feeling more comfortable with strangers. Uh more comfortable with strangers than in my regular world in academia. So the narrator starts to meet these people that she doesn't know, and she might even have assumptions about them. That man looks drunk on the bench, and this person looks like they just hang out on the pier all day, whatever. But part of the process is that she's starting to feel drawn to this. What I like to say is she wants to be in with the out crowd. And this is the out crowd. And, uh, and so she's, uh, she starts to get to know them. And that's the essence of it. A part of this wanting to be in with the out crowd, there's several, uh, several times in this collection of short stories where the narrator, who is also kind of like you, a retired creative writing professor, to be yes. specific. <laughs> <laughs> so um, close, so close. So close. She avoids bringing up the work she did beforehand because she's afraid that they will... Uh, not want to have anything to do with her if they know that she's a professor. Well, that's true, isn't it? In my own life, when I did all of these blue-collar jobs before I uh, ended up in this ivory tower world, there was a certain kind of regular conversation I could have with people. But if you tell people that you're a university professor, there's, um, there's the assumptions that go with that too, right? That you will be using multisyllabic words and talking about theory from dawn to dusk. Um, and uh, and I, uh, so I wasn't interested in uh, using that as a way in to get to know people. And you know, Eric, I looked up the definition of ivory tower and it says a state of privilege, seclusion, or separation from the facts and practicalities of the real world. And I thought San Francisco State, which a lot of this is modeled on too, it's, there's a lot of more ivory, ivory towers in San Francisco State. But if you just stay in one world, like that academic world, you won't have contact with the real world outside of there. And that's what this narrator is trying to do. She's trying to find a connection with people that she remembers from her past uh, and that she, she, uh, she wants to hang out with. She doesn't want to talk about theory. Right. And this is one of the things that I realized last night when I was reading some more of the book. I think there's a sense of humor in there that I didn't quite see earlier on. It could be just the mood that I was in or you know, maybe the CBD mm -hmm. hadn't kicked in or whatever. <laughs> but <laughs> I think you talked before with me about the, the power struggles and little things that go on in academia that you, I guess you got kind of fed up with. But once you're in the classroom, things were pretty much fine. Well, you know, when you're in the classroom, it's your world. And it's your world with the people who are in there with you. So if you can bring in the outside world via stories and telling tales from the true life, uh, and your students as writers tell you theirs, 
suddenly you have broken the wall between the inside and the outside. And everyone I know in academia, or at least most of my friends in academia, will tell you that that is a world that is, has a lot of uh, hierarchy, and it's a world that was important for this narrator to break out of. She needed to find some meaning, and it was where other people were outside of the walls of an institution. And that's what she goes looking for. There is a sign I saw in a post down by the sea, and it said, I've lost something. I don't know what it is. Can you help me find it? And I saw that sign, and I thought, that's very true to who this uh, narrator is. She's lost something, and she's not quite sure what it is, but some kind of meaning, some kind of connection. And so she goes looking at the sea. You're hearing Out in the Bay, queer radio and podcast. I'm Eric Jansen. Support for Out in the Bay this month comes from Project Open Hand. My guest is author Toni Morosevich. In her latest book, Spell Heaven and Other Stories, a lesbian couple moves to a coastal town and unexpectedly finds a sense of belonging with a group of outsiders. The collection, set in fictional Seaview, reflects on finding meaning and connection in an ever more isolated world. You know, I read two of your earlier books, Pink Harvest and The Takeaway Bin, and it feels to me like Spell Heaven is a bit uh, moodier, more pensive, perhaps even sadder. What's going on with your protagonist? Is it an age thing, world weariness? Again, I think that she's uh, found herself in a world that uh, was foreign to her. She grew up in a working class fishing family. She, uh, while she feels very comfortable in the classroom because you can do all kinds of interesting, wonderful things and have a great community there. The world of academia has, has worn her down a bit. It's, um, it's not a world she feels comfortable with. It's not a bad world. Um, it's just simply not something that she knows that well. And so she's, when I say she's looking for something, she's not only looking for meaning, but she's trying to forward the distance between herself and others. And uh, there's a great, great, great quote, my favorite quote of all time from Toni Morrison, to vault the mere blue air that separates us. So she's, I think the sadness comes from uh, not being able to vault that. And then part of the book is actually most of the book is trying to vault that uh, anything that separates us, whether you think someone walking along uh, is so different than you that you have nothing in common with them. Well, what if you open that door a little bit? What if you vault by saying hello and they say hello back and then you find out they have a life? Uh, there's a man at the end of the book, uh, Tommy Bench, and he looks like a drunk on the bench every day, but he used to work at Safeway, he used to have a life, he used to have a wife, he, and he shows the narrator a picture, he says, this is who I used to be. So. I think that part of the book is trying to get underneath whatever has made us separate from each other. And that kind of um, plays into the pandemic too, I think, in that this book seems different now than it would have if the pandemic had not happened, because it really is about getting closer to people versus distanced from people. So it, I think it might start out sad, but as she moves slowly towards people, she actually does find her out crowd. <laughs> and it's a, um, that's a wonderful thing. 
you just mentioned something about assumptions. And one of the chapters I especially liked is where people are people. And it struck me that there you are making a point about how we all make assumptions about others, about folks we don't really know yet. Your protagonist assumes that one of her new neighbor friends, Lucille, is homophobic because she says she wants to go back to where people are people. And the narrator assumes that means that she isn't a real person in Lucille's mind because she's a lesbian. So narrator's own prejudice assumes prejudice in the other person and it, you know how we all judge. Exactly. And that character, she lives with her gay son and his lover, and they have a big gay flag outside of their house all of the time. But when I, and when the narrator first encounter her, I think, oh my God, there's nothing that we won't have anything in common. You know, she wants to go where, where people are people. Well, that's like a red flag to me. What does that mean? And there, this is a small little story, an addendum to that story, because uh, that is also based on a real person who I fictionalized. During the pandemic, that person didn't wear a mask. And my wife and I always wear a mask and always did. And we ended up then just looking at each other across the way and not saying hello. And then finally, one day, my wife goes over to her with her mask on. And, and this other woman in that story says, I'm so sorry for everything. I'm so sorry about everything. And my wife said, oh, listen, we all, we're all bigger than that. But it was this moment of union that you never would have expected. We're so different politically, right? I mean, I think she, she used to watch Fox News and it's like, really, you know? So it's kind of amazing. I mean, you said it beautifully the narrator's own judgments and assumptions and other people's own judgments and assumptions. That's the task. Do you want to read a little bit from that chapter? Yeah, here's an, here's an example. This is from the one I was talking about where the man um, often is, uh, appears to be drunk on the, on the bench. He's and called Tommy Bench. That's correct. It's his bench. <laughs> and uh, this is where he's trying to get the narrator to look beyond what she assumes. It's late afternoon by the time I get down to the shore. I button up my jacket, start my walk, and spy Tommy's cap in the distance. It would take an arctic blast to keep him from his bench. When I reach him, I stop and say hey, and we start about nothing important. How the giants lost again, how they blew it in the ninth. I compliment him on his fall outfit, plaid flannel shirt, khaki Bermuda shorts, a royal blue baseball cap I haven't seen him wear before. This one sports the logo of the Golden State Warriors. The cap has a small tear in the brim. Like the cap, I say. Got it at goodwill. As is, he says, pointing to the tear. Like me. As is, I say, or is it as you were? I give him a quick salute and start to move on. Then I stop. I don't know why. Stevie, my wife, says, I always have an exit strategy. Maybe it's this feeling I have about not wanting to get too close. Or it could be that only when I'm alone do I feel free to think my own thoughts. Got something I want to show you, he says. He's slurring his speech a little, but I catch his drift. He reaches into his shirt pocket and pulls out a small square photograph. His hand is shaking as he holds the photo up to me. Here, take a look. I take the photo from his hand, staring back at me, a handsome young guy in his 20s or 30s, full head of hair, big grin, clear-eyed, confident, 
looking, the look of a guy who can handle whatever life throws at him. It's Tommy like I've never seen him, like I've never known him. I used to own a house, he says, up on Sunset Ridge, beautiful deck and everything. The wife got that and everything else. I try to picture him again in his prime with his dreams and hopes and plans for the future, with his life still ahead of him. You cut quite a figure, I say and smile, but Tommy's not smiling. He looks me straight in the eye as if to say, look again, damn it, look again. You're missing something. He gives a cough like he's clearing his throat. Then in a voice as serious as I've ever heard him use, he says, this is who I used to be, who he used to be. Not just a guy on this bench with half a can of beer hanging out with the rest of the beach gang. A guy who had a life with a wife, a house, a job and responsibilities with cash coming in, a person with a pension plan and health coverage and whatever other benefits a lifetime of indentured servitude to Safeway offers. As if I need more evidence, he lifts his shirt sleeve. There on his skinny forearm, a tattooed column of blue letters run down to his wrist. I try to decipher the code, but the letters don't combine to make any word I know. One initial for the name of each member of my family. Mia Familia, he says proudly. A photo, an arm, a beer, the sea, who we used to be. Who was the chewer in a former life, or permit man, or happy day, or me? I don't tell Tommy that I once worked all those blue-collar jobs, then went to school, wrote some stories, and now teach at a university. That I never wanted to follow the rules, academic or otherwise. That I used to be married, then divorced, then came out and married the love of my life. That when I was young, I wanted to grow up and be a sea captain and watch the waves roll by. That I was once that person and that person and that person. And now this is who I am, a woman walking alone by the sea. A person who's soon to call it a day on that Cush University gig, ready to leave it all behind. All of who I used to be is still in here, tucked inside my shirt pocket, tucked inside this skin. Just a few more things. I don't want to take up a whole lot more of your time, but uh, how has Pacifica changed? You mentioned that Pacifica had its first Pride celebration this year. It was extraordinary. Here's an example. My wife and I, years ago, we would walk by the uh, sea and a man yelled out of his truck once, go get married. He said it in a way that was not friendly. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I said back to him, we are, okay? <laughs> so that sometimes in the early days of Pacifica felt more like the tone of this city. And now it's, uh, I mean, there, there were all of these pride flags along Palmetto, which is the, uh, one of the main streets, though it's not a big main street in Pacifica, it's a pretty small town. Um, and there was, uh, there's a place um, that a, a gay couple owned called Table Wine, and they had a pride celebration, and there was a burlesque show. And I mean, it was so joyous. And when we took the dogs for a walk, all along Palmetto, someone had chalked at every crosswalk in the sidewalk, love wins. So it was, it was, it was just lovely. I mean, it really, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's pockets here of people who are not as open and welcoming as uh, I, would, I would like, but it's, uh, it felt welcoming and it feels more welcoming now. Um, it feels more welcoming than the first poem in Queer Street, which where a woman comes over and says, I sure am glad a gay couple had the guts to move on this block. Uh-huh. 
the guts. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, so no, I think that, I think that we're moving along. And yet, uh, there's one other change you mentioned early in, earlier in the book. This is the chapter, the year of mercy, and it's about misfits. They've always lived by the sea. People camp out in the parking lot. Oh, let them sleep. I once overheard a guy say to a cop who was writing out a ticket for a tent pitched on the asphalt next to an old VW van, what's the harm? And really, what is? Ever since the tech crowd bought up this town, <laughs> found that they could live coastside, and in the morning, rocket down to Silicon Valley in time for their first game of air hockey, the rents have skyrocketed. Where are people with that kind of wherewithal to live? That's a part of the change that it's uh, a huge, have huge part of the change. I mean, and and again, we ended up at, uh, 30 years ago in a house because an older gay couple uh, loaned us the down payment, and that was that's 30 years ago. And these houses, which are little ranchers, are they're out of sight. It's just out of sight, and that's everywhere in the Bay Area. But it's 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 really actually uh, it's very hard to see that here. How long did you teach at well, SF State? Um, I started um, teaching in 91, so a while. Okay, that's a little while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's about 30 years uh, yeah. I'm doing the math, right? Oh, I can do math too. Great. <laughs> so how do you think uh, the changes in the student body reflect or perhaps predict changes in society? Attitudes, priorities, expectations, hopes and fears? The students, I loved the students. Let's just say that at the start. And in creative writing, you had students who really believed and believe in their voices and in art and in writing. It's not what you would call a degree that is going to get you a whole lot of quick money and quick jobs, okay? <laughs> no. So that was kind of incredible to see people believe in themselves and believe in community and art and, and things. This is the uh, dichotomy. Uh, Academia, I think, has some issues. The students were fabulous, and they just got more and more fabulous as time went on. I mean, they were open. They wrote about, you know, I would bring in stories, true stories, uh, to trigger them, and they would tell their stories. And I, I don't know, I don't know if I can say anything any more articulate or or, or articulate what the exact changes have been. But people seem more open more willing to take risks in their work, more willing to give it a shot. That's great to hear. Yeah, no, I'm, I think the students are, are uh, just, I think they're it. <laughs> Did you write these short stories mostly before the pandemic or after or during or? No, I mostly wrote, wrote them before the pandemic. There's a Croatian uh, term, malo pomalo, that my grandmother used little by little. So these stories really came out little by little over the years. One of the last stories in the book, as if you and I agree, is about people wearing and not wearing masks. So it does bring us up to the uh, present day. But it really happens over time, as does the transformation of that narrator from being pretty frightened of strangers to feeling like, oh, wait a minute, this is where I want to be. I, I don't know anyone who isn't actually having a challenging time right now. Um, I, I actually don't. I think it's really hard. And I think the degree to which we close in on ourselves more and more, and part of that is, you know, we have to be safe, and I understand that, but, but the degree to which we in any way open up to strangers and to people other than us, that would be what I would love. Um, if, if this inspired any of that, that would be, a, that would be great. 
Yeah. Okay. That's wonderful. Thank you. Where can listeners learn more about you and find Spell Heaven? I have a website. Um, it's a long name, www.tonymurosvich.com. And that has um, all of the various books and descriptions in the books. Uh, you can get the book, you can order it through Bookshop, um, which is a group that I really, uh, bookshop.org, I really like what they do with uh, getting books out in the world. Great. Uh, we'll spell your name just so people know. <laughs> it's T- Tony, T-O-N-I, right? Mirosevic, M-I-R-O-S-E-V-I-C-H. So TonyMirosevic.com, you said? Yeah, you did that very well. Well, I have it in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Out in the Bay Queer Radio. You can catch up on past episodes, get in touch, sign up for our email newsletter, and make a donation all at outinthebay.org. Huge thanks to Brad Payton and Richard Merck of Silicon Valley for their generous support. Join them and us, if you can, at outinthebay.org. I'm Eric Jansen. Thank you for joining us. Out in the Bay. Out in the Bay.